I am so glad that you're here. I uh, heard a story recently about a consultant that was working with all of these college-age students, and uh, his firm had done a lot of research trying to figure out what the previous generations thought about working with the younger generations, and so they did all of these studies and got all of these buzz phrases and buzzwords all together, and so he's having this kind of meeting with all of these young college hopefuls that are just about ready to enter into the marketplace, and, and he says this to them. He says, you know, every generation has a word or phrasing that describes them. Every generation uh, has another generation that is ahead of them looking backwards and describing them. And, and so he asks this question, he says to these young college kids, he says, do you know what word came out on top in all of our studies that describe you young people going into the marketplace today? And, and I'm going to give you a little hint. He says, I'll give you a little hint. He says, it begins with the letter E. It begins with the letter E. And, and so all these you know, young college kids are so excited and they go, man, we excellent, <laughs> enthusiastic, you know, exciting, all of this stuff, right? One guy even said exceptional. And, and finally this you know, consultant guy says, no, 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 no. The, the, the word that came out on top by far that described your generation by the older generation is a simple word called entitled. Entitled, right? Now, now listen, listen, before, uh, and you, got, you know the idea of entitlement, right? The idea of entitlement is I deserve something, that it's owed to me. I ought to have what somebody else has just because I'm alive, right? Just because I breathe, right? And before us older folks get all excited and we say, yeah, that young generation sucks, you know, before we get all crazy like that, let's ask the question, who gave them their attitudes, who, who handed and shaped their lives? Who, who gave them the, the heart behind who they are? Friends, it's, it's us. It's, it's my generation that shapes the next generation. Am I right? That's just how it goes. Uh, you think about this. For example, uh, for, for those who are my age, we've done this in, in many, many ways, but for those of you who are my age and older, it was typical uh, that the average person would work so much that, let's just be honest, they would often end up divorced, Right? And because of the divorce, uh, people would work and work, and they would try to make it up what time they did not give to their kids. They would make it up in things, right? So we replace time with things. Uh, you can have this. You can have that. What do you want? You got the latest game system. You got the latest clothes. You got the latest shoes. You got everything, everything, everything you want. And so kids would say, I want it, Daddy. And we would what? Give it to them. Entitled, right? Entitled. And, and not only that, we've protected this next generation coming up. When I was a kid, how many of you guys remember this? When I was a kid, uh, we would get like 18 of us in the back of a pickup truck and, and cruise down the road. Y'all remember this? And, and we would have the time of our life, and it was crazy. Uh, but now you can't even get in a car without like 43 different seatbelts locking you down, right? Uh, why? Because we protect these kids. Uh, kids today, they can't even get on a bicycle without a helmet. We have literally taught our kids, you will die if you get on that bicycle without a helmet. Put that helmet on, right? It's just, we protected these kids and we've promoted these kids. We have protected and we have promoted things that probably don't even need promoted and maybe should not be promoted. When, when I was a kid, anybody remember this? You actually had to win something to get a trophy? Does anybody remember this? You actually had to win something to get a ribbon? Uh, now it's like, wow, Johnny, you showed up. And you ran really, really slow. So here's a ribbon for last place, right? I mean, it's, it's crazy, right? And Johnny walks home with the ribbon from last place. We've done one thing well in our family. It's only with one of our four kids. Our fourth child, Isaac, if he gets one of those I tried trophies or I tried ribbons and the last place deal, he gets so mad. <laughs> I'm like, yes, so good. He knows something, right? Uh, it, it's true, right? And this is um, how, how it is. Like, uh, we, we built this kind of entitled generation. We've protected and we've promoted them. Uh, it, it's true. Like, my kids think it's absolutely normal to go out to dinner, like, all the time, to go out to eat literally all the time. I can't hardly remember when I was a kid going out to dinner. Anybody? And, and so when we did, it was McDonald's. And on a good week, it was like, if we went out for pizza, like the once every couple months deal, it was a huge deal in our families. But, but, but the truth is, like, with my kids, it's like, Dad, we cannot go there. What do you mean we can't go there? Dad, we cannot go there because they have too many GMOs. 
It's not organic, free-range, grass-fed, locally produced, fair trade, gluten-free, high-fiber, water-salable, low-sodium, high-protein. I'm like, what? Just eat the stupid hamburger for crying out loud. You know what I'm talking about? And we've just raised this kind of entitled generation. And if it's like, dad, that ain't designer. It ain't going on my body, right? Listen, we were like happy when we went to Kmart and got the little blue light special. We thought going to Walmart was an upgrade. You know what I'm saying? It's just true. Now, nowadays it's like, dad, I can't have that cell phone. What do you mean you can't? It's a perfectly good time. Dad, it's only three Gs with 56 gigabytes and only 10 hours of memory. It will take me two seconds to download on that phone. What? What? You got to be kidding, right? It is the word entitled. Well, we're wrapping up this series called Virtues. And we have been talking about those things that are on the inside of us that help us rise above the downward pole of our world. And you realize there is this downward pull of life, isn't there? Everything in this world wants to take us south. It wants to take us somewhere other than where God wants us to be. And this idea of virtue, this idea of having character, is what makes great men and great women great. It it, it separates them from others. It separates us from others. This idea of virtues, it's so important. It's the inner character, listen, that reflects the nature and character of God himself. And, and the scripture says we ought to possess the nature and the character of God. And so my hope for this series is that uh, you have been encouraged to rise above the downward pole of this world. Anybody been encouraged at both of our campuses? Have you been encouraged? Uh, I hope so. Uh, and if you missed a week, I would just really... Uh, implore you to go back online. You can catch it for free. Just go to our website. You can find it all under the media section. And and if that serves you well, I I think it's so important to purposely grow our soul by getting under the teaching of God's word. And today, uh, if it's okay with you, I want to wrap up this series talking about something that, that is the exact opposite of the entitlement mentality that we have today. And it's this word, Gratitude. It's this virtue that has long been, been since forgotten in our world called gratitude. And I want to begin, uh, if it's okay with you, by turning to the book of Luke. So if you have a Bible or a smartphone, uh, I think it would serve you well if you uh, got that thing out and just Googled Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, or if you have an old-fashioned Bible, uh, you can find that by going about to the middle and take a right, and you will find it right there. Y'all good? Are we all good? Okay, well, I need a little love. Need a little love. So Luke chapter 17, I think you might find this story that comes from the life of Jesus to be fascinating. Very, very interesting to say the least. And it begins like this. Uh, We're going to start in verse 11. It says this. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus did a lot of traveling. He's moving from town to town. He's sort of on this like constant tour, right, going from place to place, uh, teaching and preaching and all that kind of stuff and doing incredible things. And so he's, now he's on his way to the big city uh, of, of Jerusalem. And it says, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Uh, and then listen, verse 12, it says, as he was going into the village, 12 men who had leprosy met him there. They stood at a distance, listen, they stood at a distance and they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, master, have pity on us. Now, now, let me just bring you up to speed just to kind of help set the context and make us understand this just a little bit uh, better. The idea of leprosy, it is not a disease that we deal with much in America, uh, but it's still alive and well in our world today, mostly in the third world. But the idea of leprosy was that it is an excruciating, painful, painful disease. Oftentimes, uh, your, your body would open up, your skin would open up, and, and you would literally just have human fluid leaking from different parts of your body. It's a, essentially, it's a, a nerve disease that is a degenerative nerve disease where you, you get to this point where you actually don't even feel pain until it's too late. So often, like, you would go to bed at night and you would have these open sores on your body and uh, maybe an open sore on your thumb or your toe and you would wake up in the morning and a rat had eaten that limb off because your nerves had died, and by the time you felt that rat gnawing on your finger, it was simply too late. 
it was too late. But I want you to think about this. It, it wasn't just the physical pain of leprosy, but there's an emotional side to leprosy that almost nobody in this room can even possibly comprehend. You see, in the book of Leviticus, uh, chapter 13, under the Old Testament law, it, it talked about how do you deal with people with leprosy. And this is very interesting because leprosy is highly contagious by the touch. And so, of course, if you have somebody with leprosy, you can't let him infect everybody else. W would we agree? Right? And so the point of the law was good. It was to keep it from spreading to people who did not have the disease. But it was interesting. What it commanded was that when somebody who had leprosy would come into a town or a village or a marketplace, they had to yell out in a loud voice, unclean, unclean, unclean. And everybody would clear away knowing that somebody with leprosy was coming. And if they touched that person, they could run the risk of getting leprosy themselves. And so I want you to think about this. Imagine how humiliating it would be every time you got around people, you had to yell, unclean. Somebody who is unworthy to be among you is among you. Think about how, how emotionally draining that would really be. And, and think about this idea of not having any human intimacy at all, at any level, at all. You weren't allowed to touch anybody, not a handshake, not a hug, no affection, no attention of any single kind. Now, I want you to think about how incredibly difficult that would be. And so these 10 guys hear that Jesus is across the street. And they're not dumb. They have leprosy, but they're not dumb. And they go, oh my goodness, this is Jesus. Everybody's heard about Jesus. Isn't Jesus the guy who is like healing people and making people who can't walk, walk, and making people who can't see, see? And there's, they're not dumb. They're going, whoa, whoa, this is an opportunity. Whoa, this is a big moment. This is my chance to possibly get some of whatever magic powers, whatever deified powers is coming from this guy. They're, this is our opportunity to connect with him. And so from across the street, because they can't come up and touch him, so from the distance, it says, they yell out, Jesus, have mercy on us. Jesus, have pity on us. And friends, think about this. You and I would have done the same thing. There's no level of embarrassment at this point because you have no other hope at all. And so they're yelling, Jesus, Jesus, have mercy, knowing that this moment could possibly change the rest of their lives. And listen to this, verse 14, this is amazing. It says, Jesus sees them. And when he sees them, he says, now listen, he says, go and show yourselves to the priest. What doesn't he say? He doesn't say, you're healed, you're well, have a good day. He gives them a very interesting command. He says, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, what does it say? As they went, they were cleansed. So there was a miracle upon their obedience, right? They, they had to move. They had to go to the priests. And as they were going, they were literally cleansed. And, and, and so why did he say, by the way, why did he say, go show yourself to the priests? This is really interesting to me. Why, why did he say, go show yourself to the, to the priests? Because back in that day, uh, the local pastor, the local priest, was sort of like the medical examiner. He was like the medical verifier, right? And, and so people would come to him and they would go, hey, look, I came up with these wounds on my fingers. Is this leprosy? And it was a moment of what? Life or death for them. Because if the priest says, yes, that's leprosy, you are from that day forward an outcast from your family. You will never enter your family's home again. Think about that. And if he says no, then you're like, woo! So the priest is this guy. By the way, a little side note, do not come and ask me to look at your personal <laughs> stuff. That stuff weirds me out. We got doctors who love that kind of stuff. I, I will like faint, okay? I just want to let you know right now, okay? Uh, but these guys, they go to the priest and they were healed. Their disease was gone. And, and this is like their greatest prayer answered, right? But, but look at verse 15. Look at the response that goes on here. Something very uh, surprising. Uh, how, how many of them were there originally? Ten, right? It says, but one of them. How many? One. How many were there originally? Ten. Nine were missing. Nine were missing. It says this. One of them, when he saw he was healed, 
came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a, what is this word? Samaritan. Now, it's interesting that the scripture points that out, right? Because most of the time in America, we live in a melting pot kind of a culture. Very rarely we'll say, oh, that guy's a northern Scandinavian person, you know? Uh, but it points out that they're, they're a Samaritan because there is this constant tension between Jewish people and Samaritan people because Samaritan people were considered half-breeds. They were half-Jewish and half-pagan by descent. They were a mixed breed of people. And they kind of had their own little territory. Their own real, they were relegated to being second-class citizens. But the scripture says it's the second-class citizen that comes back to Jesus. Listen to this. It says, Jesus asked, were there not, how many? Ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this what? Foreigner. And Jesus is making a point, right? He's not belittling this guy. He's actually elevating this guy. He's saying this is somebody that everybody else looks down upon. He's a foreigner. And yet he is doing the right thing. He's doing what God would want. And Jesus is dumbfounded in this moment. I want you to get yourself into to this story a little bit. You know, Jesus says, where are the other nine? Where, where is everybody? Weren't there, nine, weren't there ten of you and only one returns? And it's this foreigner guy, and he's speaking to this crowd of people that have gathered around because they're going, this guy had leprosy. This guy was like, this guy was like, he is a beggar. He is a leper. He is an outcast, but he is not that anymore. Something happened. So this crowd is gathering around, and he says, hey, where's everybody else though? And Jesus is like, dumbfounded, right? He's like, weren't you and your friends, weren't you crying out? Weren't you in deep distress? Wasn't like life basically going nowhere for you and you were just gonna live out the rest of your days alone and you cried out and God sent me to you and you're the only one who came back? And he's like, what is up with this? And now you gotta admit, to the defense of the other nine, I was thinking about this, to the, to the defense of the other nine, um, they're probably not bad guys, Right? They're probably just super excited. Like, woo, woo, I thought I would never see my wife again. And they're healed all of a sudden. The priest says, okay, you are free to re-enter society. And so what's their first thought? They, I'm gonna go home and see my wife, my kids. It's been 10 years. I'm gonna go see my family, my friends. I'm gonna go back to work. I'm gonna get my life going again because I've lost my life, right? But let me tell you something. What do you notice? This idea of entitlement slips in for all of us. They're like, and by the way, I didn't ask for this disease. I never expected this disease. I never wanted this disease. And I deserve to be healed from this disease. Of course God chose me. And so they no longer think that they got to go back to God and thank God for his goodness toward them. You see this? You see what's happening here? My question to you tonight, today, my, my question to you is this. Will you be the one? Will you be the one who on a regular level hits the pause button of your life and seeks out God to thank him, to reposition your soul, to reconnect your soul to him? Because listen, everything inside of the human story is self-absorbed, right? Everything. It can't just be me, right? You find this about you? That everything in your life is about you. It is, it is the, the uh, formula for self-entitlement all the way through our life. Every advertisement we see, every moment of pleasure, every decision we make is all centered around us. And I'm just wondering, will you be the one who hits the pause button and seeks out your creator? Thanking your creator telling him how much you love him and how grateful you are that he has given you life. Will you be the one? And, and friends, not just with, with God, but I'm wondering if we'll be the ones or if you'll be the one who will pause for a moment and thank the people that God has put in your life and has made your life valuable and has helped you in your life. Will you be the one who will pause and tell your mom and dad every once in a while, man, thank you. Thank you for all the sacrifice. For all those things I never even thought about. You have cared for me at unbelievable levels. levels. Will, will, you, will you thank those who, who have built into your life, like your teachers and your coaches? And, and uh, you know, like maybe will you be the one who will stop over at Metro Kids and say, you know what, you've been serving my kids for five years. 
And I'm just so grateful. So grateful for you, for your investment in my life. I'm wondering, will you be the one who will stop your campus pastor and say, man, thank you for caring for our little church. Help you, thank you for making my life better. This is the kind of question that we have to get around because let me tell you something, there is a fine and dangerous line between this idea of entitled and this idea of gratitude. It is a fine and dangerous line. And so I'm just wondering, how many in the room, if we were to be honest, you would say, you know, I don't know, Pastor Jay, I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of a grateful person. I, I really am. Anybody in the room, if you're just honest, I mean, just be honest. You say, I'm kind of, I like to show gratitude. Even you and even me, there is this dangerous slope of self-entitlement in every single one of our lives. And, and I just want to flesh this out a little bit so that we can catch ourselves before that slide happens. Y'all with me? Come on, y'all with me? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, I, I want to get around a story that comes out of the New Testament part of the Bible. It's a story that Jesus tells. It's a, it's a bit of a parable, right? And a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's an earthly story that carries the weight of eternity with it. And so Jesus tells this story. And in this story, you're going to see uh, two sons who have uh, two different reactions to their life. But they, they both struggle with this mindset of self-entitlement. You're going to see this. This is an incredible deal. Uh, and, and this, so, but before I kind of get into the story, I, I want you to maybe think about or even write down a couple of thoughts that the ungrateful mindset struggles with. These are things that I think you and me and a whole bunch of us, we, we struggle with this. And so think about this for a second. The first mindset I want you to maybe write this down is I want it now. So say this with me. I want it now. One, two, three. I want it now. When? I want it now. This, this is us, right? This is American culture at its best. We want it now. True story. Just, just today, um, as I, I was totally stressed out preparing for this time together, uh, I'm, you know, preparing the word of God to bring it to our church. And uh, my wife, my wife has the nerve to ask me to go pick up our little Isaac from swim team practice. And I'm thinking to myself, honey, don't you realize who I am? Don't you realize what I got going this weekend, tonight, in just a few hours? And don't you know that I am completely stressed out trying to prepare my heart to be holy before God, to deliver the holy word of God to God's holy people? What are you thinking, woman? And of course I say, Yes, honey, I'll go get him. And, and I'm stressed out, and I'm like, I'm not happy about this. I don't want to elevate my, I'm, I'm not happy about this, but I'm like, I'll go get him, and I'll show you just how holy I really am and how good of a man. And I'm like, literally, I go out the door, get in the van, and I'm driving up I-75, and I'm cruising along, thinking about this message of having a grateful heart, not an entitled heart, right? A grateful heart before God. I am so wrapped up into this, I drive right by my exit and I land in this massive traffic jam on I-75 and I'm squeezed. I don't even have hardly five words written on this message and I'm going, whoo, whoo. And I am like, almost like in pain. I'm hitting the stupid steering. Where are all these people? Who decides to take a three-way highway, a major highway, and shut it down to one lane? Who thinks of these things? I am so mad. I am literally trying to cut across the little dip in the highway, trying to turn around, and I'm like, this is crazy, right? Because I want it now. And this is us. This is us. This is our mindset. We're Americans. I'm this and I'm that and I want it. What is the word? Now. And out goes this heart of gratitude and in slides this entitlement mentality. It just kind of slides right in. Let me read this to you. This is found in the book of Luke, chapter 15. This is the story Jesus says. Listen, keep that in mind. I want it now. It says this, Jesus continued. There was a man who had how many sons? Two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divides his property between them. I want it. What? Now. And just in case you don't know this, traditionally speaking, you do not get your inheritance until your parents die. 
right? A uh, little side note just to help everybody out. Do not go to your mother and say, I cannot wait till you die because I want your stuff, right? <laughs> bad idea, terrible idea, right? Uh, that would be bad. But this guy goes to his dad and he says, listen, I want to live my life. I want to live it my way. I'm sick of you telling me what to do. I'm sick of living under your rules. And I want my share of the estate. Now, I have no idea why the father did this, but he goes ahead and he grants him his share of the estate. And he gives it to him. And the Bible says that with this share of his estate, he went out and he squandered it. You know what I'm talking about? It says that he went out and he uh, had wild parties with women and that's crazy. And he spends a bunch of money on that. And he has these drunken parties and he's, he's just throwing this money around and finds out in a very short order what his dad spent a lifetime building. It says that he squanders it away immediately. Just months maybe, weeks maybe, I don't know. But he squanders it away because what? I want it, what's this word? Now. Uh, what, what's interesting to me is this upcoming generation uh, really does have this uh, mindset. I want it now. You see people in their 20s, and I got a 20-year-old, and I see their friends, and they come over, and I hear them talking. They have this I want it now mentality. They want what mom and dad have, their house, their, their cars, their, their ability to go out to eat, their ability to go on vacations, and they want it now. I'm 20 years old. I deserve what you have right now. Right? Now, before we go slapping them down on that, uh, who set this standard for them? Us, right? Uh, shame on that generation. No shame on us because when we want it now, we don't wait. We just pull out a credit card, right? Uh, now, it's been a long time, but I want to share something that I think it would be like my grandparents' generation, but they had this crazy and this archaic philosophy. It's very complicated, but I'm going to just try my best to, to bring this to you because I think this will elevate us. They had this crazy, crazy idea that our generation and those under us really almost know nothing about. They had this idea that if, that if you wanted something, you would save up and then buy it. What? That's this crazy talk. Okay, so maybe that was a little complicated. Let me, let me say it another way. If... You don't have the money for something. You didn't get that something. It's crazy talk, right? Uh, so this whole idea is that we have this I want it and I want it now sort of mentality. Uh, but friends, listen, uh, we have trained ourselves. We have conditioned ourselves for this. And, here, and herein lies the problem. This is what leads to stress. This is what leads to debt. This is what leads to a lack of peace and contentment in our life. The I want it now mentality. Now, go further in this story. There's another word or a little phrase I want us to get around before we read this next section. Um, the, the, it's the mindset of an ungrateful heart. And here it is. I deserve more. I deserve what? Help me out, campus. I deserve more, right? This, this is so true. Listen to this. Uh, there, there's an older brother in this story, and, and there's the younger brother and there's the older brother. Now, the younger brother, he goes out and he blows his whole deal, and he realizes one day that, oh my goodness, I have screwed this whole thing up. I'm starving. I could go home, and if I could just be a servant in my dad's house, it's better than being poor out here, right? So in other words, if I could just live in my parents' basement, it's certainly better than living in my trunk, Right? That's what he's saying. So he goes home, and it says something interesting. Now, Jesus is painting a picture of our heavenly father. And this father is at the edge of his property. He's looking out, and he sees his son come home. And his son says, Dad, I'm so sorry. I screwed it up. I never should have done this. I'm so, 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 so sorry. And the father reacts in a very interesting way. The father says, son, I'm just super glad that you're home. We'll deal with all that later, but I'm super glad that you're home. And he tells his servants, he says, go kill a cow, steaks for everybody, get the grill fired up, we're gonna have a party. Remember this? The other son, the older brother, he hears this and he sees this going on. His dad's like, got this big party thing's going. He rented a DJ and they're boom, boom. And, and it's like, what is going on? And so the older brother comes to the father and says, what do you mean you're throwing a party for my kid brother? He's a loser. Like, he, he took half of what we had, and he blew it all. And you're, and you're welcoming him home? What, what are you thinking? And then he says this. He says, 
I have always obeyed your rules. I've always done it your way. And you have never given me more. You've never given me anything. And he has this, I, I want it. I want it now, but I want even more because I deserve it. I deserve what? More. Look at this, look at this. Uh, chapter 15, verse 29, Gospel of Luke, it says this. Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you have never given me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friend. He's like, somebody owes me. I deserve better than this. Dad, I deserve more. And, and here's how, how we often get. We often say, well, if my boss is not going to pay me what I'm worth, I'm not going to work hard. And I'm going to have a crappy attitude. And I'm not going to do a, a level of excellence that honors God and inspires people. I'm just going to pull back a little bit. Or even worse, if I can't get what I want, I won't even work at all. I mean, it's crazy. You think about this idea of I deserve more. Has anybody ever struggled with that in your house? Anybody have a 12-year-old? Anybody at all? It's crazy to me. Like, your 12-year-old goes, I deserve a cell phone. What? Have you worked any day in your life to pay an electric bill? No. Well, how are you going to charge a stupid cell phone? Sorry. Ain't going to happen. Right? I, deserve, I want one with the internet because I got to connect to the internet as if that's really healthy for a 12-year-old boy. Right? Come on, right? But they have this sense of demanding, right? I've seen kids, and this is a true story, like they go, I got to have $150 Nikes. I got to have three. What do you mean I got to use the Apple iPod buds that came with the phone? I deserve Dr. Bray, Dre, Beats. Right? Right? Beats, right? Is that what they call them, I think? And I'm like, you want a $300 pair of what that you're going to lose anyways in a week? You got to be kidding me, right? I have seen 16-year-old kids who live in very affluent areas who are ranting and raving that they did not get a new car when they turned 16. I, I've been in communities where the scale is so high uh, that it's like virtually child abuse if you don't give your 16-year-old a brand new automobile when they come of driving age, right? And this is crazy. Why? Because we have this mentality that says, I deserve it. I deserve it. I, I'm, I'm living and breathing and I deserve what? More. Friends, let me tell you something. There is a fine line be, between feeling entitled and being grateful. Jesus says, what, weren't there 10 of you? What happened in the heart of the other nine? Why is there only one here? And so here's what I'd like to do for the next few moments that we have. I, I want to get us around uh, some areas of life that I, I just think that we struggle in, that, that I think are just universal struggles when it comes to the battle of, a, of entitlement versus gratitude in our soul. Can we, can we do this? And here's what I want to do. I want to deal with it biblically, and I want to deal with it straightforward and honestly, okay? And so I'm just going to throw some ideas, and maybe these apply to you, maybe, maybe they don't. Um, but I think that this is the universal struggle for all of us. And here's the first one, if you want to write this down. Uh, I, I'd like for God to just expose the inward struggle of entitlement when it comes to material ungratefulness. Listen, material ungratefulness. Listen, just look at the marketplace around you. Every single advertisement you see says, your life is not complete unless you have this. And let's just be honest. Doesn't it take a little bit away from your soul? Come on, doesn't it just kind of pull at you, if we're honest? Isn't there a little bit of us that says, you know what, honey? That advertisement's right. I am not complete. I am not content until I have that. And there is this battle for materialism inside of us, material ungratefulness. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done this before. Anybody ever walk into a closet full of clothes? And look around and go, help me out if you know this one. Man, I just don't have anything to What? I want you to think about this. Think about, for me at least. I bought everything in my closet. And so really what I'm saying is, what idiot bought all this stuff and doesn't even like all the stuff that he bought? Right? I don't have anything to wear. I, but, but friends, the truth is, I've been places where they literally have 
nothing to wear. Nothing. Um, and I know, like, as Americans, we hear this, and we go, well, that's not real, and that's over on the other side of the world. Earlier this year, I, I got to go to Nairobi, uh, Kenya, in Africa, uh, into the Kibera slums, considered to be one of the most impoverished urban centers on the entire planet. And uh, I could share so much, but I just want to share uh, what I think to be the most um, life-changing moment for me personally in the Kibera slums. Uh, we'd gotten to know a bunch of these uh, incredible people, and uh, there was this young man who had graduated through the academy that our church helped support, and um, his name was Collins, and we uh, were invited over to his little house in the, in the slums. And uh, it wasn't very far, maybe a couple blocks away. And uh, you're kind of weaving through these pathways. There's no roads. There's nothing like a road, nothing. And they're pathways. And these pathways are maybe three to four or five feet apart at the most. And imagine a million people, a million people, not one bathroom. You hear me? A million people, no plumbing. And so where does everything go? It goes into these pathways that you're walking on. And you're literally walking through and around and over and trying not to, you know. And so we go to his house, and he's got two roommates, two young men, good-looking guys, sharp guys, both graduated from high school. So all three of them graduated from high school. Um, tons of potential. And they were so kind. Uh, their, their room was um, about size of a bedroom, maybe, you know, and uh, 15 by 15 at the most, and uh, cement floor, so they kind of lived upscale in, in this particular slum. They actually had like a kind of a rough cement floor, and they had three little mattresses on the floor, little, you know, little thin mattresses, and they had these little milk crates that kind of was their drawers, you know, and they had a, a few things in those drawers, and they were so kind. They actually had a couch that they dragged through the slums and put in there, and they were like, oh, pastor, oh, pastor, sit on our couch. I'm like, oh, I'm okay. And I'm looking at this couch going, oh, pastor, sit on the couch. You sit, you sit. We stand. So I sit on the couch, and we're talking. And uh, I asked them this question. I say, what do, you, what, do you, what do you want out of life? What, what is your great hope, let's say, for the next 10 years? And uh, it was interesting. They all responded just like this. They said, oh, my goodness. In 10 years, maybe in 10 years, listen, our hope, three young, smart kids say our hope in the next 10 years is to earn enough money to get out of Kibera up to the next level of slums. Think about that for a second. Your 20s are the years that you're making something in life. You're building something in life. You're setting direction and hope and dreams. And their greatest hope was simply to move out of this one bedroom, one tiny thing that cost them $25 a month for all three of them. I was sitting there and they, they said, tell me about your family. And I said, well, we got this house in America. And I said, I got three boys and one girl. I said, oh, tell us about the girl. I said, oh, my gosh. And I'm like, oh, boy. And so I said, I had a beautiful 17-year-old daughter, and uh, she's got a bedroom in the upstairs of our house, and she's got a bathroom in that bedroom. And they go, your, your whole family lives in that bedroom. No, 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 no. My daughter lives in that bed. The water flushes? Yeah, to herself. She, oh, yeah. They just couldn't believe it. Just could not believe it. And so I come back to the States, and uh, there's a fine and dangerous line between entitlement and a heart of gratitude, right? It can slip back and forth. And I catch myself coming home uh, saying crazy things like, I really need this. Think about that. Have you ever said that, I need this? Anybody ever tell their parents when you're young, I need this? Anybody or is it just me? Come on, you all with me on this? I need this. At our campus, at our video campus, listen. How many have said, I need this? I catch myself saying, I need what? As if God 
owes me anything. As if God has not provided everything that I need. Everything. I don't have anything to what? Where? Friends, there is this dangerous, fine line between, the, between this idea of entitlement and, uh, and gratitude. Uh, fr friends, here, here's the next thing. I just want us to be honest. So you just judge your own heart. Just judge your own heart. Anybody with me so far? You with me so far? Just judge your own heart. The next area, I think, is relational ungratefulness. Relational ungratefulness. Uh, some people, like, they're sick and tired of their parents meddling in their life, telling them what to do. Uh, some people here, it's like, if I could only have a husband who would earn more or shave once in a while or, uh, you know, say some nice things or be the spiritual leader of my home or if he could just fix the stupid dishwasher once in a while, right? Or my wife, if, if, if she was just more fun, a little bit more spontaneous or she was more romantically involved or, or whatever it is, right? Uh, uh, or we say, if I just had a different group of friends to get around or, or if I just had some friends who were really nice to me or cared about me or whatever, right? So we have this relational ungratefulness inside of us, you know, and it, it, it runs deep. Uh, can, can I just be honest with you? Um, I struggle with this. Here, here's my struggle. I know exactly how I want other people in my life to treat me but I don't treat them that way. I know exactly what I expect out of them, but I don't expect myself to treat them in the same way. And friends, there is this dangerous, dangerous and fine line that we slip between entitled and grateful, where we think these people owe me something rather than being grateful for the very people that God has put in your life. Anybody with me? Fine line. Anybody? Yeah. Here's one more. Here's one more. Uh, I think there is this, if we're going to be honest, there is this circumstantial ungratefulness that we struggle with. Uh, I don't really like my job. I don't really like my house. I don't really like my car. I don't like my hair or I don't like the lack of hair that I have. I don't like the breaks that I'm getting or not getting. Uh, you know, how come all this good stuff happens to them and not me? You can call it whatever you want, but, but the truth is there is this circumstantial ungratefulness that I think just kind of slips in to our life. And it's a fine line, but it's a dangerous, dangerous line. Because let me tell you something, friends. When we start going through life complaining about everything, it drains the human soul, doesn't it? I know. I struggle with a critical heart. I struggle with a complaining heart. And there's something in the human soul that is dragged down when we live with this lack of contentment inside of us. And I'm not saying at all that you shouldn't try to work hard to improve your life or get more money. Or, or to, and I pray to God that you get the stuff that you want in life and that the good things happen to you that you want. And I pray that your relationships come together, your circumstances come together. There's nothing wrong at all, at all, with trying to better yourself. Amen? Nothing wrong with that. But the moment we live with a lack of contentment, all peace is gone. The moment we live with this idea that if only this would work and only if I get this and only if this would come my way, when we live with an ungrateful soul, the peace of God vanishes in our life. The presence of God vanishes in our life. And you're gonna wonder, where is he? Friends, it's not God who's disappeared. It's you because you have no, no longer realized that you're, the good and great things of life, they come from the hand of your heavenly father. And you're treating it like he owes you something. Like he owes me something. And so here's what I'd like to do, if it's okay. Just over the next few moments. Um, I would like for us to work on a heart of gratitude. How about that? Can we, can we guys? Okay, let's work on a heart of gratitude. And uh, how do we do this? How do we do this? How do we go from being entitled to, to having a heart full of gratitude? Uh, well, I think we need to cultivate this. I, mean, I think we need to train our mind for this. And so here's what we're going to do. We are going to learn to lift our gifts. We're, we're going to learn to lift our gifts. 
oh, come on, Pastor Jay, that is so cheesy. Couldn't you think of something better? No, I can't think of anything better. If I, thought, if I could have thought of something cooler to say, I would have said it, okay? But that's the only thing I could come up with. We are going to learn to lift our gifts before God. We're going to lift our gifts, right? Uh, every gift that comes your way, we are going to remember that it comes from God. Everything that comes your way, God has either caused or he has allowed to penetrate your life in some way. Every good thing, every bad thing, every good circumstance, every bad circumstance, we are going to learn to lift all of those before God. Anybody in the room? Anybody? You're going to hear me on this? All of it gets lifted to God, we're gonna train ourselves to think this way. One of my favorite authors is a guy named John Orper. He says it like this, this is so good. He says, gratitude is the ability to experience life as a gift. It opens us up to wonder, delight, and humility. It makes our hearts generous. It liberates us from the prison of self-preoccupation. Maybe I need to read that again. It liberates us from the prison of self-preoccupation. Woo, somebody needs to say, that's good. That's good. Listen, gratitude is not something we give to God because he wants to make sure we know how much trouble he went to over us. He went to over us. Gratitude is the gift God gives that enables us to be blessed by all of his other gifts, the way that our taste buds enable us to enjoy the gift of food. You hear that? That is genius. Listen, without gratitude, our lives degenerate into envy, dissatisfaction, and complaints. Taking what we have for granted and always wanting more. Our life degenerates somewhere if we don't live with this heart of gratitude. Or Orberg's words remind us that um, one of the reasons we want to choose gratitude over entitlement is because the alternative really stinks. The alternative of living with a life of gratitude or a heart of gratitude, the other side of that heart is a heart that is chronically discontent, a heart that is chronically complaining or judgmental or dissatisfied. Uh, have you ever met somebody like that? Come on, anybody? It's like, doesn't anything please you? Doesn't anything make you happy? And some people are going, I'm married to him. I'm married to him right now, right? But what is it like to live like that? Some people in this room have lived like that and God freed their soul, Right? Something shifted inside of you. And some of us need to have that shift happen inside of us. You see, this is, this is the heart of a person who lives with a demanding spirit without any sense of awe or wonder. Uh, this ungrateful, you know, entitled spirit. It's a person who lives every day with a sense of entitlement. Ingratitude makes our hearts grow small. It makes our heart hard. It makes our heart cold day after day after day. And friends, listen. You know this, and I know this. It is a miserable way to live. But entitlement says, my misery needs to be projected on somebody else, and I'm going to make them suffer because I feel like I'm suffering. And in the end, you only hurt yourself. Amen, Pastor Jay, that was so good. Right? Because entitlement carries bitterness with it. It carries victimhood with it. And that is no good way to live. That is not a good way to live. Uh, there's an old worship song, and some of y'all remember this song. And uh, it, it says, every blessing you pour out, I will turn back to praise. Now, I would sing it for you, but nobody would be praising God at all if that happened. But, but you know what I'm talking about? Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. Now, I want you to write this down, or maybe take a picture of this. I think this is just so important. We are going to make the decision to lift our gifts to God. We're going to lift everything in our life to God, and here's why. Because every blessing that I don't turn back to praise turns into pride. Now, I stole that from Pastor Craig Rochelle, so you can clap. He's way smarter than I am, okay? <laughs> listen to this. This is so true. I steal all my good stuff from him, by the way. He's amazing. And, uh, but, but listen, he says, every blessing... I don't turn back to God and praise turns into pride in my life. Every blessing that you hold to yourself and you start to think, I deserve this. I want more of this and, and I demand this and somehow I, I'm entitled to this that somehow I've earned this unto my, myself. Every blessing, every good thing in your life comes from God. And the moment you stop thanking him for it, Pride begins to well up in your soul. And here's the danger of pride. We talked about it during this series. Pride comes before a fall. And God loves to lift the humble, but opposes the 
Come on. Proud, right? He opposes the proud. We need to cultivate. We need to train our mind. Everything that comes our way, we lift before God. All of it. Good, bad, and all the stuff in between. We go to God with it. And we say, God, thank you. God, we love you. God, we praise you, God, for these good things and these these rough things in our life. God, what do you want to teach me in the moment of roughness? What do you want to teach me in this good, in this bad, in every single thing in between? Paul, the great apostle, he says it like this in the book of, of Philippians chapter four. He says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I can do everything through him who gives me what? Strength. He says, whatever the circumstances, if I'm healthy, I lift it before God. If I'm unhealthy, I lift it before God. If I'm hungry, I lift it before God. If I'm full, I lift it before God. This is why a little family like mine, as a family, every time we try to eat together, every time we're by ourselves, we taught our kids, you pause and you say grace, not because of some religious pious act before God, but because you want to remember him. And you want to be humble before him and thankful to him for all that he has given to you. When good things are happening, we say, let's get around, let's pray, let's ask God to bless this, and we're so grateful for this. When things are bad, when there's emotions running high, we say, God, please help our family. We bring it all to God. We lift our gifts to God, all of them, the good and the bad. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. I'm, I'm going to pray, and, uh, and, and then I'm going to turn over our time to our campus pastor to lead us in this thing called communion. And we are going to thank God today together for the ultimate gift of grace in our life. So God, today, at both of our campuses, um, we remember you, we thank you, we praise you, God. I pray that your spirit would move among us and change our hearts, change our minds, help us to remember you in all things. Amen.